Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forever, for the scepter of the wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Almighty God, please help your servant today to preach your truth. Help it to take root in our lives, in our hearts, Lord, so we are able to win other men and women to you in this valley. I pray for those uh, that aren't with us today, Lord, that you be with them, knowing that we are uh, praying for them and that you are with them as well. And I pray that uh, this day would be honor, honoring and glorifying to your name, Lord. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. And I'll be reading verses 27 through 33. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 33. Hear the word of God. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Amen. And this morning, as we uh, take a look at John, we've been working uh, through the entire gospel. And Jesus just finished describing his death in the previous verses. Beginning at verse 24, there, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. And it is, it's in that context, as Jesus is considering his death, that trouble 
enters his soul. Really great grief and sorrow. And, and what we'll look at this morning is his troubled soul, his father's glory, and his people's good. His troubled soul, his father's glory, and his people's good. And that's where Jesus begins. Note here the confession. He's, he is confessing that he is distressed of soul. My soul is troubled, is what he says. And this is, uh, he's praying. This is, uh, he's speaking to his heavenly father here. This is in the midst of declaring truth to his disciples, and he breaks out in a prayer to his heavenly father. This is great and heavy grief. We've seen this word already. And uh, in John eleven thirty three, when John sees the people weeping there for uh, Lazarus and possibly for Martha and Mary, and he sees them weeping, he groans in his spirit and he's troubled. Is it great mental distress? In John fourteen again, this comes up. The same word. Um, look there with me, John 14, beginning at verse 16. And this is in beginning at verse 16. It's not John 14, so uh, forget it. I wrote down the wrong address. Um, maybe it's John. Wait. I wrote down the wrong address. That's okay. But great distress and trouble fills his soul. When he is having the supper with his disciples and Judas is there and he speaks about the betrayer, the same word is used. These are, every time this comes up, it, it is in some intimate context and his death is looming or death is looming. The death of his friend Lazarus and the, and the sorrow that had overtaken those who knew Lazarus, particularly Martha and Mary. And now, as he consider, considers his own death, this same sorrow enters his soul. Jesus was a real man among men. We get this conception in our mind of the Lord Christ because he is divine, because he's the God-man, that uh, maybe he didn't feel or experience sorrow the way that many of us do. He, he was sort of this third thing. And because he knew the future and he, he's omniscient, he was able to, to shield himself from emotion. But that is not at all a biblical view of Christ. He, as a man, suffered. He is, he's, of course, he's described by the prophet Isaiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That, that, that was the lot of our Savior in this world. And it, it wasn't just grief and sorrow for the sake of grief and sorrow. It was grief and sorrow for the sake of his people and for the glory of his Father. He came into this world to suffer so that we might be redeemed and his Father would be glorified in that work. So when we see these instances of great distress, we don't have to try to uh, 
uh, sort of logically uh, separate them from the person of Christ and provide some explanation that, that doesn't communicate that he is actually suffering distress. So he is confessing his distress, his troubled soul to his father. And he adds, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? In, in, in essence, at, at this point, Father, as he's praying to his Father, what, what, what else can I say? What can I do in light of the, my death and, the, and his suffering that is looming before him? Father, save me from this hour? And here you have, of course, a rhetorical question. He's, he's um, what shall I say? Save me, Father, from this hour. It, it, Christ may have well added, no. The, the rhetorical question is, is uh, meant to be answered with a no, with a resounding no. Because he knows why he must face this death. When he's in the garden praying, you, you see this. How his, his, his emotions as a man are drawn out to God in light of the suffering that's coming. And uh, um, people like to make this, this strange distinction that primarily, or they'll say things like, really what he's praying for is the separation he is going to experience with his father. And yes, that's, that's accurate, that's true. But again, he was a real man. And he is going to be beaten beyond recognition. He's going to be embarrassed and shamed before an entire nation that he came to be its savior. He came as the Messiah of the Jewish people. And now he is going to suffer, suffer a level of degradation that is unworthy of, of, a, of a criminal, let alone the Lord of the universe. So, so I think that it is very, um, maybe even Gnostic, to separate these true two realities. Yes, he's going to, there's going to be a separation there, right? The Father is going to pour out his eternal wrath upon the Son. Yes, but the physical sufferings are not a small thing either. He was obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. So when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, these things are drawn out from him. And he, he says to his father, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's not that there are two opposing wills in God either. This is him pleading as a man to his father in heaven. And then again, in chapter 26, verse 42, he says it again, a second time. He goes away from his disciples. Oh, but now look, listen how the prayer now changes. He says, oh, father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So I, I would take 
that understanding, his submission to his father's will in his crucifixion as the answer to his rhetorical question. When he says here, Father, um, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. That's why he came into the world, to die for the sins of his people. And he would not be stopped from dying. Remember when Peter, right, Peter makes the wonderful confession in Matthew chapter 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says to him, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then Peter begins to talk about his death. And Peter says, you're not going to die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Nothing would stop him from going to the cross. Because of two things, his father's glory and his people's good. That is what Jesus was constantly pursuing. His father's glory and his people's good. The author to the book of Hebrews, I mean, he meditates so well upon the death of Christ and him being a high priest, and he mingles these things together with Old Testament scripture. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, Verses 15 through 16. He notes something very special about our high priest. Hebrews 4, verses 15 through 16. He says this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Weaknesses. But was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And, and even this, this, his looming death, could be an opportunity for Christ to cower and to say, no, I will not do the Father's will because of the difficulty I have to face. But he, 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 he presses forward in obedience to his Father. Look, being a husband, as a point of application, being a husband includes a great deal of dying. You have to die to yourself for the sake of your wife, and if God blesses you with children, for the sake of your children, for their good. There are many shiny things that, that, um, that, that you could rightfully have that you have to deny yourself for the good of this people. Now, of course, the death of Christ looming and, and your desire for a Harley Davidson are incompatible. But, but, the, but, the, but the principle, right? The principle that men must pursue love for their wives as Christ did for the church is in the text or as a means of application that you can draw out. And this is something that we have to constantly remember. And even as Christian people, in loving one another, remember what Christ says to his disciples, that the love that we have for one another ought to be the same love that he expresses for us in dying. And there are many points when caring for the people of God, when loving one another is very difficult. It, it puts strains upon your schedule, right? Love for other people imposes itself on you. But when love imposed itself on our Lord, what did he do? Did he shrug it off? Did he say, no, that's going to be too difficult. 
I, I've, you know, I've got to watch Dancing with the Stars tonight. I just can't make it to your house. No. Not at all. He, he, he received it with joy and with gladness, knowing it would be to the eternal good of his people. In all points he was tempted, and I'm certain that this was a point of temptation, not because there was any corruption in him. He was never tempted from within to sin because he was sinless, but things presented themselves to him from outside, like his death looming over his sinless life. The wrath that he would bear for the sins of his people. And rhetorically in the question, Father, save, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. A resounding no. And therefore, as the author to the book of Hebrews says, we can look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, and he despised the shame. He looked to the cross. Right? It's looming over him. His death is, is hanging over him. And his soul is greatly troubled. But what does he see there? Joy. And uh, the author to the book of Hebrews doesn't tell us explicitly, but of course we could draw some lines, some truths. What, what's the joy? The glory of his father. His father's going to be glorified in the exaltation of his son when men worship him as their redeemer. That's great joy. That fills the heart son with joy because he is the obedient son. And through him, the gospel will be spread to all the nations and men and women will be drawn to the Savior and be able to call him father. Now, children, this is a, this is a, a vital, vital point and truth for you to understand. The death of Jesus is not just something uh, that grown-ups can understand. You see, you, you on, on a regular basis, maybe hopefully decreasing, disobey your mother and your father. And, and that disobedience arises from a sinful heart that we're all born with. We're born in trespasses and sins. Well, those sins and that disposition... Those sins and the disposition to disobedience can be dealt with for you. If you look to Christ on the cross, if you believe that he died for your sins and you turn from your sinful ways, and then even as a Christian, as those dispositions arise, you can look again to the cross and acknowledge, no, I've been freed from the power of this sin and now Christ is working in me. And Christ then looks down with joy. He looks, at, he looks to the cross and he sees joy because his father will be glorified. But then he looks down to earth and he sees all of the children that are now his. And, and there, of course, in the language of the book of Hebrews, is, is uh, children there is not just little children, but even adults. And the author to the book of Hebrews says this, For it was fitting for him, for whom all things were made, and by whom all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
this is the, the father. He's, he's bringing many sons to glory and he makes the captain, the chief, the architect, the trailblazer of their salvation. He perfects him through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Of which reason he is not ashamed to call them his brethren. So part of Jesus' joy in going to the cross is because now he has all of these siblings. Right? The new heavens and the new earth is going to be populated with brothers and sisters who have been adopted into the family of God because of Christ's death. But there's another step here. He says, I will declare my name to, your bre- to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, ah, here I am. And the children whom God has given me. So there's a sense where we're brethren, but we are also his children. And as the cross is looming over the Christ, he is troubled in soul, yet he says, no, I'm going to continue. He's going to set his face as a flint, and he's going to go to the cross. He's going to bear the public shame and the divine wrath so that his people can be saved, so that he can gather his brothers, his children to himself and rejoice over their salvation. Now, so you have, first, a confession of his distress, this rhetorical question, and next you have an affirmation of his mission. But for this purpose, literally for this, this is why Christ came into the world. So this entire confusion that you see in the Gospels, you even see it with John the Baptist, this entire confusion about what Christ came to do. Remember, there are many points in the Gospel of John where they try to seize him and make him king and rule over us and, and, and depose the Romans and, and march through Jerusalem with a huge army and will conquer the world. There's a huge confusion. Even for John the Baptist, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come? Or are we waiting for somebody else? Because I'm in jail and you're the Messiah. But Jesus knew the purpose for which he came into the world. He says, for, literally, for this. This is why I came into the world. I came into the world to be a propitiation, a sacrifice offered to satisfy the wrath of God. He came into the world to be a substitute, to stand in our place. So that we might be delivered from the wrath of God. Um, that focus is, is, is such a Christ-exalting focus to have when you read the Gospels. To look to the Gospels and see that all, of, all that Christ is doing in all of His ministry is, is going to find its, its apex, its, its, its point of completion at the cross. Now granted, as he is exalted into heaven, and now you read the book of Acts and the epistles, that work then spreads throughout uh, all of history and all of the world. But as you're reading the Gospels, if you have that fine point to know, everything that, that is happening here in the, in the life of Christ, from his, from his birth to his baptism and temptation and all of his ministry is 
for the glory of his Father and for the good of his people. That is an amazing, amazing truth. So in Mark 10.45, what does he say? In light of his purpose here, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came. That's why he came into the world. Paul amplifies this. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. That's why he came into the world, to save sinners. And that's why he leaves us in this world. He leaves us in this world so that we can declare that same message to others. Right? As, as fathers and mothers to our children, if God blesses us with grandchildren to our grandchildren, if he gives us great-grandchildren to the great-grandchildren, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our siblings, Christ, when we get converted, he doesn't uh, just teleport us out of this world. He leaves us here so that we can continue to declare the wonderful good news that Christ came into the world to die for sinners. To die for sinners. That's the purpose for which he came into the world. And, and, and he views this purpose as the means by which his Father is glorified. Look at verse 28. Father, glorify your name. That's the connection there. He views his purpose. So he asks a rhetorical question. What am I going to say, Father? Deliver me from this hour a resounding no, because I came into the world for this purpose. Therefore, Father, glorify your name. Confirm everything that you've promised in the Old Testament in types and in shadows and in figures by giving your people a sacrificial system and all of the promises of a deliverance of sin and the renewal of the world and a gathering of saints to worship you. Glorify your name in that, Lord. Glorify your holy name. What's interesting, too, is that a, a disciple like Peter, as he reflects upon the life of Christ and he's speaking to believers in um, the dispersion, uh, turn to 1 Peter. Listen, listen to what he says in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, I'll read from verse 13. Now, a little bit of the context of 1 Peter. These believers seem to be entering into some period of persecution, some period of difficulty. And Peter now, is, he's going to encourage them. Listen to what he says. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? That's, a, that's an amazing truth um, that ultimately, if we are submitting ourselves to the will of our Heavenly Father and quote-unquote bad things happen, they're not really bad things. But even if you should suffer, for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. 
and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And that word troubled is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, now my soul is troubled. And Peter says, don't be afraid or don't be troubled. Why? Because you're submitting yourself to the will of God. As Christ was doing it, it's almost like he, he is modeling Christian obedience after the pattern of Christ. We'll never attain that. We'll never be perfect. That's, that's not my point. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Christ's life becomes a pattern for believers. We are being conformed in this life. Not only in glory, in glory perfectly, but in this life we are being conformed into the image of Christ. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that... When they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And, and again, right, that, that's, that's the pattern. Now look at the next verse. For Christ also suffered once for sin. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And He becomes a pattern for us. That, that, that uh, willingness to enter into suffering for the glory of God and for the good of God's people is something that should be a pattern in our own lives. And, and now you can flesh that out in many ways. So I spoke about husbands, but, but even wives. My wife has a really difficult job. You should all pray for her regularly and just lift her up in, in prayers. This morning, she's at home with uh, some sick babies. So uh, pray for her. But, but women, let me not make this sermon about my wife's prayer requests. But, but women who, who, who are Christian women who are married, their, their life really is a life of service. Especially if God blesses them with children then it, it, it is almost as if their entire life is taken up in these other lives. And then if God blesses and, and multiplies those children, it's a lot of giving of their life for others. That kind of sacrifice is necessary, though, for the good of those children. And if the, if the mother is able to capture that truth, that this sacrifice this service to this man and to this children is for the glory of God and for their own good, she can capture that idea of imitating Christ as a wife. And again, as I said, as we serve one another as Christian people, this is, should be a governing principle that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for the good of those whom we love. We should put our necks out there for other people and for the church. We should be willing to identify ourselves with Christ's people and to suffer whatever reproaches we need to suffer because we are Christians. And, and increasingly, this is be becoming an issue. If you're a Christian person and you hold particular views, you're, you're being ostracized, treated as some kind of a pariah or like you have leprosy. And what we need to do as Christian people is 
when, when we have brothers and sisters who are in the lines of work where that's going to happen is support them, pray for them, and do whatever we can to hold them up so that they're not tempted to, to compromise. We need to do whatever we can to help one another in these things. You see, Christ was able to do it with a band of very weak disciples. But he was the God-man. He was the sinless Son of God. We can't. We, we will fail often. Peter did. Peter denied the Lord. And then in, in turn, this is, this is what is amazing about Peter, and I'll end here. I've read this often because as, as I think about um, Peter, or whenever I come to 1 Peter, I think about this. Listen to what he says in 1 in, uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 6. And they're suffering right now. And he says, In this you greatly rejoice in their salvation. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And there's a purpose, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here it is. He says, whom having not seen, you love. And that, and that was the question that Jesus asked Peter. At the very end of the Gospel of John, he comes to Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Asked him three times. Peter's heart broken in tears. Of course he loved the Lord, but he was weak. And God, the Lord Jesus Christ, wanted to challenge Peter. But he says this, you haven't seen him. You're going through these trials, through this great difficulty. You haven't seen him and you love him. And it's seen in your perseverance through this difficulty. That, this is one of the things that shines through when a Christian sees difficulty looming ahead. He's troubled by it, but he perseveres for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. You know what motivates that? It's a love for their Savior. It's a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, in light of these things, yeah, we're supposed to get to verse 33. Yeah. But brothers and sisters, in light of these things, let us go to God and let us ask Him to strengthen us through the trials and difficulties that many of us are going through and to assist us that we might never compromise, but that we would submit ourselves to the will of our Heavenly Father and glorify Him and love our people and, and, and do good to his people because we love our Savior. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the opportunity to sit and hear your word. Lord, anything that was said this morning that is contrary to truth, may, may the people here forget it. And those things that are edifying and, and according to sound doctrine, may, may they be engrafted in their, in, uh, impressed upon their minds and engrafted in their hearts. We thank you for our Lord Christ and for his unwavering commitment to glorify his Father, even to the point of death, for his Father's glory and for our good. And may that love that Christ had for his Father and for us motivate us and compel us, Lord, to suffer at whatever level you call us to. And may we be willing to do all things for the glory of God and for the good of your people. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.